Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of This Show is All About You, a show about all the ways in which you and me connect as we and then what that means for all of us. As always, I am your host, J.D.K. Winnikin. You can find out more about me at my website, which is wordsbyjdk.com, and on my social media feeds at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Welcome to episode 24 of this show for June 21st, 2021. Um, and I feel like I'm breaking some some rules here. I'm in Seattle and I'm in shorts uh, because it is hot. Uh, it's not nearly as hot as some other areas in the country. So wherever you are, I hope you are staying cool and staying safe. Uh, but for me, I feel like I'm breaking the rules a little bit today. So um, maybe that'll translate well for the show. Who knows? Um, but uh, the the title of today's show kind of seems like the exact opposite of my mood. Uh, today's show title is The Tyranny of Memory. The Tyranny of Memory. And uh, we've been talking about history this month. I have monthly themes for those of you that are new to the show. And this month's theme is history. And talking really about how, in a lot of ways, the way we understand our collective history on a nation, national level, maybe a global level, is similar in a lot of ways to how we can understand our personal histories. And, and we've been talking a lot about how we make meaning out of those things, both in the history that we all learn or that we all should learn and in our own personal lives. And so today what I want to talk about is memory, which as you'll see is a very different thing from history, uh, but oftentimes are equated the same. So the tyranny of memory is today's title and, and the haiku that I always start the show with every week uh, for this week uh, should give you a clue as to where we're going to go. And it goes like this. Memory as such contains both fact and fiction for us to wade through. Memory as such contains both fact and fiction for us to wade through. Uh, and to get, there's, there's a differentiation here that I want to make uh, right away. And I have some quotes from some people who actually make the point better than I probably ever could. But when we talk about uh, the history of the past, we're talking about specific events, people, things that are irrefutable that have been recorded. Now, certainly all of history is not about everything that's ever happened in human history, uh, because all of that simply can't be recorded. That's impossible. So history is a record of what has been written down at various points and collected and told over time. So those things are immovable. Those things uh, kind of sit as they are. And certainly we have to study them to learn them more, and you can have lots of debates about them. I've, I've said earlier on this show that history is not about memorizing a collection of facts. It's about learning those facts and having conversations about what they meant at the time, what they have meant since then and what they might mean now, and perhaps what they suggest about the human condition or the human experience. Uh, so that's history. Memory, however, particularly the larger collective memory we have about historical events, can be very, very different. And that's what I'm going to talk about today and then dovetail it into talking about the memories that we have in our personal lives and the memory that we can get from our families, for example, or our communities or the society or the country that we live in, the may or may not be based in fact. And how do we wrestle with those things? Uh, just to give you a, a sense of a little bit more of this, uh, <laughs> the Canadian poet Anne Michaels uh, w once said this, history and memory share events. That is, they share time and space. Therefore, every moment is two moments. Right? It's both a historical event and then it is going to become a memory. Is, is her point. She also said, which is one of, the, one of the great quotes of any kind that I love, and so I had to throw it in here. She also said, the truth doesn't care what we think of it, <laughs> which I really do love. Uh, and so uh, I just had to include that in. 
Uh, I love both of those quotes because they point out that history and memory uh, are in relationship uh, constantly, uh, but they are not the same thing. Uh, and both are pivotal in how we search for meaning in our lives, in our pasts, and in what we're trying to do in the present as we build a future. And to, to take it back even further, I, I was as I was thinking about putting together notes for this show, for whatever reason, uh, Viktor Frankl came up, uh, the famous author, of course, of Man's Search for Meaning. And uh, he wrote something that I think fits in really well with this and what we're going to talk about today when it comes to history and memory. And he said this. It's one of the most famous quotes from Man's Search for Meaning. Quote, man does not simply exist, but always decides what his existence will be, what he will become in the next moment. By the same token, every human being has the freedom to change at any instant. And what I'm going to suggest today is that while history might be immutable and movable, factually based, memory is the area where we can get caught up and really get trapped in, you know, in stories that don't serve us, in um, kind of messaging that we give ourselves about our lives, about our direction, what's possible for us, what's not. And I think what Frankel is pointing out in some ways is the antidote to not allowing, to having memory affect us negatively is to recognize that it doesn't have to. And so what I want to talk about, and that's true when we're talking about history or we're talking about ourselves. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about this dynamic. Uh, just last week in the Atlantic magazine, which I, I consider required reading uh, pretty much every day for me, in the Atlantic, uh, the historian Kelly Carter Jackson talked about uh, Juneteenth, which, of course, was just this past weekend. And since we talked last, it had been made uh, an official uh, federal national holiday uh, and had been celebrated in a number of areas of the country this year in ways that what it hadn't been last year or certainly five years ago. And she, she talked a little bit about Juneteenth as what's, what's the holiday going to be like? If it's going to be going forward, if it's just going to be yet another day where everybody gets a day off, does that really provide substantial commemoration reflection on the importance of that day, which, of course, is to celebrate the end of slavery in America, going back to 1865. And in that conversation, uh, Kelly Carter Jackson wrote this, and I think it's worth quoting in full. This is what she said. I think she's, she's on to something. Quote, there is a pointed difference between history and memory. History is the study of the past. It consists of facts, events, people, and irrefutable occurrences. History is American slavery and the Civil War and emancipation. But how Americans understand slavery, the Civil War, and emancipation, though, is colored by memory, which tends to honor only the most shallow aspects of history. Statues, flags, and songs are part of the tangible manifestations of memory, and what is worth, worthy of remembering in this country is often highly contested. I have found, she said, that the public usually uses history and memory interchangeably, though they are not the same. History is immovable, while memory is malleable. And the key challenge, she says, is, quote, how to reconcile history with memory, the past with the present, and symbolic changes with systemic ones. And that really cuts to the core, I think, of, of not only when we're talking about American history collectively, that collective story that we share, but also in our own lives. And I'll speak more to that than, than Jackson uh, certainly was going to. And it means, so memory being malleable. 
what we know about the science of memory is, is a place to start. Memory over time can change. The personal memory that we have of events can change over time. There have been plenty of studies, for example, of uh, the firsthand accounts and memories of World War II air crews. This happened quite a bit. World War II air crews whose memory of events when they were interviewed in years over time seemed to change. Sometimes things were left out. Sometimes new elements were brought in. And memory has, we have the ability and sometimes the proclivity to adopt other people's stories as our own. And so this could happen where an, uh, a World War II um, air crew member is telling a story that actually happened to a friend of his. And there might be documentation of that. It doesn't mean that that person was lying. It just means their memory blended those things together. And certainly it doesn't change the truthfulness of that event, right? It happened. It just happened to somebody else. Our memories do that. And certainly memory can also project myths backwards onto the past. And oftentimes memory is used in that fashion to make the past a little bit more palatable, a little bit easier to digest. And it, it allows people to avoid confronting some pretty nasty things. And personally, I think that's where a lot of the debate about the removal of Confederate statues from various areas in the South really stems from, because that is based in myth. And you'll hear people who defend that as saying you can't remove our history. History has nothing to do with it. Those statues are about remembrance. They're about memory. They're about celebrating a story about the past that is not factually correct. We've talked about the lost cause myth every week so far on this show this month. And that myth that the Civil War was not fought over slavery is at the root of the lost cause myth. And therefore, because if you believe that it was not fought over slavery, you can elevate people who fought for the Confederacy and see them as uh, genuine heroes. And what that does is on one level is it allows people to avoid confronting not just the legacy of slavery, but all the decisions and problems and uh, injustices of the Jim Crow era afterwards. And so that is memory. It is highly selective from the historical past. It elevates certain points. It ignores others. And it creates a series of myths that people believe are 100% true. That's a battle over memory. That is not a battle over the history of the facts of the Civil War itself. Although, and that oftentimes they will say that, well, it happened this way, it happened this way. Uh, no, <laughs> not necessarily. And if it did, there's probably some other things that you're leaving out of the story. And so it is interesting then to kind of stick with Juneteenth and this, this commemoration piece. It is going to be very interesting to watch how Juneteenth develops as a national holiday uh, going forward. Major companies right away uh, upon the uh, declaration of it as a federal holiday gave their uh, employees the day off. And others, you know, moved it to various points uh, coming up for people to commemorate that. And there were interesting commemorations in a number of places. Here in Seattle, where I am, over the weekend, uh, the Major League Baseball team in town, the Seattle Mariners, on Saturday, they donned the old uniforms of the Seattle Steelheads from the, the team from the old Negro League days in Seattle. And they honored Juneteenth throughout the game with things like the singing of Lift Every Voice and Sing, which some have called the Black National Anthem. And they also had extended conversations on the TV broadcast with the chairman of the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Bob Kendrick, talking about the importance of black players in baseball prior to Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in 1947. And 
uh, and the effects all of that had. And it was very what I was what I was amazed by was first of all the conversation went on for like two or three innings, uh, you know, over the action, and also was amazed at how historically rooted Bob Kendrick's uh, points were, and that made the memory of the Negro Leagues as he was putting forward very strong. The meaning that he was it was being assigned very strong. Even though Juneteenth is not about the Negro Leagues, right? It was able to connect those two things together in meaning, and it was very, very powerful. And so when history and memory are closely connected, at its best, it's when historical facts are informing as much as possible that memory. So it'll be interesting to see as we move forward with Juneteenth what will happen. Personally, I think one reason why Memorial Day, for example, is so remembered collectively and honored is because of of one particular visual, the laying of a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknowns at Arlington National Cemetery. Every year, President of the United States goes and does that. And it is on national news, even if it's only for 10 seconds, but it happens every Memorial Day. It's an important part of the commemoration. It's a very simple act and a very powerful one. If Juneteenth commemorations can develop things like that, the memory and the historical facts based upon them can steadily be brought together to the point where the memory collectively and individually can perhaps match up with the historical facts. Now, that's going to be a long process, just understanding the way uh, questions of race are being debated in this country these days. So it's going to be a long process. So that reconciliation will take time if it even happens at all. But it's not the only area in history where we see this. And this question of memory becomes important. Recently, I've, uh, I've been asked to, um, to give uh, a talk at an upcoming uh, Holocaust conference uh, down in Arkansas. And uh, it's coming up. It's a little ways down the line. But one of the things they want me to talk about is uh, the effect of firsthand accounts of the Holocaust on subsequent generations. Now, they want me to talk about the accounts of people who were perpetrators of the Holocaust or collaborators or bystanders, not not the victims themselves. And, of course, you know, as I tend to do, I do a lot of reading on these things before I start putting pen to paper. And what I've seen, of course, is that for families of both Holocaust survivors uh, and for families of perpetrators, the power of memory as handed down to them has profound effects on how they experience their own lives, the present, the past, and what they see as possible for their future. And it's really, really powerful because these are memories, strong ones. And in the case of perpetrators, ones highly, highly skewed away from fact that are nevertheless being handed down to children. And children in in any family are handed down the sort of historical memory of their upbringing or of their family's history or their family's tradition, the religion that they grew up in, right? The culture that they grew up in, the state, the society, the practices, what sports teams they rooted for. I mean, all these things are pretty much put on kids at a young age without them even knowing it. And that becomes the baseline for where children, as they grow up, will be untangling these stories for themselves to figure out what is it that it's actually true about that, what is it that they actually believe? What do they believe in themselves? And the pressure to continue to follow that collective memory idea as handed down is incredibly powerful. 
And so it raises that big question on a personal level, just the same way as when we ask it on a national level with history. Who is giving us, who's providing, who's putting forward that memory? When we're talking about history being taught, we hear where all the conversations are these days. Right? It's schools. What are they teaching? What are they not? Are they teaching, quote unquote, all of American history or not? Or is it skewed one way or the other? And certainly we can also add things like museums into that or people's willingness to read books, <laughs> which may be, may be a disappearing uh, practice. Who knows? But that's where we know that comes from. Well, who gives us our memory? On a personal level, right, it blends in with those things because part of what families hand down are their views of the world and their views of history, their politics, right, their sense of national pride, their sense of civic pride or lack of it, depending on who we're talking about. And those are given value and those become anchors for kids for good or for worse. It's their starting point. And so then as they and as we build and grow our own lives, our own relationships, we start to assign meaning to past events, which is memory. And memory is malleable. Okay, so let's take a step back at this point and now kind of cross over the bridge from the history side to the personal side. Okay, so if, if that transmission is going to be malleable, we start adding our own malleable memories to the events, the important events of our past. So, for example, if you look back on a relationship that ended many years ago and it ended painfully, we were heartbroken then. There have been meanings assigned to that memory one way or the other. The way I tended to assign things like that was, um, wow, I'm never going to feel this way again, or I'm always going to be alone, or I'm destined for it, or I'm unlovable. Now, that's a meaning attached to a memory that may not be, certainly has no basis in fact. Everything I just said, this means I'll never love again, I'll always be alone, I'm destined for it, or I'm unlovable, <laughs> pretty much has everything to do with future ramifications of that event. It's a made-up story. And yet, I've been able to believe that kind of memory and internalize it for a really long time. It certainly happens with past traumas of various kinds, which at first, they're absolutely necessary to dig into when we explore them, to find out what happened, to start identifying its effects on our lives in the past and the present, and then determine ways to work through it, to grow from it, to heal from it. And yet prior to doing that, and even sometimes during, we can turn, create memory out of this that doesn't match necessarily what happened, or create stories about what it all means for now and the future. And that can derail us from not just the truth of what's happening, but the truth of right now. And what ends up happening is that when that goes on, we start avoiding or we make unavailable to ourselves what Frankel said in that quote, our inalienable ability and right to choose and to change. Our stories about ourselves can and should be based in the facts of our own histories, I'd say. And we also get to decide how to frame them based on those facts. It, can sound, it sounds really simple in concept. And maybe to some of you who are more skeptical, it sounds really reductionist. But I really do think it's at the essence of a lot of what we struggle with. So even though it's a simple concept, 
I acknowledge this can be really difficult to do in practice. After all, how does one confront the weight and when do they realize they can of sort of the collective history that they've been handed over time, whether it's about American history and the meaning they put into it or about their family history or their family practices. When does that happen? When is someone capable of addressing that? When they're 15? Earlier? Probably not. When they're older? At what point? I honestly think earlier the better, <laughs> but uh, I would highly encourage people not to wait till their 40s uh, like I have. Uh, just because it's the level, the, the realization that I'm making more and more as days go by, that I have more power to change the stories for me, uh, has been profoundly liberating and affecting. Uh, and this is the interesting part. Our history stays the same. What's happened to us in our lives stays the same. The losses, the accomplishments, the setbacks, the changes in belief, where we move to, all those things don't change. But we have the ability, I think, and if Frankel is right, uh, the necessity, to build meaning upon those that benefit us and benefit others. And that doesn't mean you have to lie to do it. The facts of history don't lead to simply one outcome in interpretation. They just don't, which means I could create a very negative story, a negative memory or meaning of that memory, if I wanted to, that would be based on facts. could certainly do that. It also seems to stand to reason that I could create a more positive one <laughs> that would be just as based in those facts and actually might be better off for me to do. It's interesting how many people sometimes when I say that to them will say, wow, that sounds optimistic. And I can almost see the word naive flashing behind them. They just don't want to say it. <laughs> and and so, as if somehow cynicism is more refined <laughs> or cynicism is more real. In that sense, it's one of the things about history that has always attracted me and also frustrated, with, frustrated me in how people uh, publicly understand it. It's very easy to be cynical about history, very much so, and good reasons at times. It's hard not to be cynical about history when you're studying something like slavery or the Holocaust. Note that I picked two of the biggies when it comes to difficult subjects uh, in history to talk about. And at the same time, alongside that, there are plenty of stories in both of heroic actions on the part of people. Some of the best of human capabilities, some of the best human stories you're ever going to hear about human capabilities and will and determination and success and growth come from people who act in those difficult situations on the basis of positive impulses. Harriet Tubman comes to mind with the Underground Railroad during the Civil War. A number of people who would not be famous, everyday people in Eastern Europe and elsewhere, who helped hide Jews from the Nazis and their allies during the Second World War. There are many of them who did so. And those stories are worth recounting and worth telling. And they exist side by side with the horrors of those who perpetrated those things 
And those stories can be elevated in talking about the Holocaust to really be put side by side against those horrors to show that that event encapsulates both the absolute worst of human potential and in some responses to it, the absolute best of what human beings can be about. And what we choose to emphasize, what we choose to build on, what we choose to base our own sets of beliefs on is our choice. So if it's, the, if it's that way for that, isn't it the same to a certain degree in our own personal lives to be able to choose more than we think how we want the meaning of our memory to be? It's important to understand as much as possible as basis in fact. And it's tough because our family histories aren't recorded like big history events are, right? For the most part, it's like family albums and then people telling stories back and forth. But over time, those can change. So it's tough. I realize that. But if it's true for historical events and we can decide what we want to emphasize, whether we're going to be cynical, optimistic, maybe a little bit of both, certainly we can do the same in learning and going back and learning from our own experiences and our own history. It has been absolutely required of me to do this work, honestly, in order for me to grow, in order for me to not collapse in on myself in previous years. It's been a huge part of my own personal rehabilitation, if you will. But I believe strongly in it, and perhaps you can hear it in my voice. And it leads to a whole number of questions I know uh, that, that you will have upon hearing this. Okay, I've laid out a pretty simple series of choices. Let's say we embrace your premise, JDK, that you can change more than you think. How do we do that? Well, I don't have time to get into that today because we're, we're rapidly running out of time here. So I'm going to be talking more about that next week, how we can shape our stories, how we can own our stories and tell them in ways that are honest to the facts of our past that are beneficial to ourselves and to other people and actually give us the best chance to move forward and be who we really want to be, who we believe ourselves to be. So we'll be talking more about that next week. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. I'm looking forward to seeing all of you again at that point. So thanks for joining me on a, a very full <laughs> episode of This Show Is All About You. I am your host, JDK Winnikin. Again, uh, hit me up on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I would love to talk with you. And uh, until next week, all chins up, everyone.